this week in SPCA, episode 47 for the week ending April 7, 2017, the season opener edition. In this episode, Jay Rosen and I have a wide-ranging discussion on some of the week's top FCPA and compliance-related stories. We start off by noting with some amount of pride that the Houston Astros, the Boston Red Sox, and the Los Angeles Dodgers all lead their division in Major League Baseball after one week. We talk about the retirement of SEC FCPA unit head, Kara Brockmeyer, from the Securities and Exchange Commission. And we go over some of the highlights uh, during her tenure. We discuss Walmart's announcement of its 2016 spend on its FCPA investigation and remediation of $99 million, bringing it to over $800 million since the New York Times broke the story of Walmart's alleged corruption in Mexico. We take a look at an interesting article by Sarah Croft from the Grand Jury Target blog where she talks about Upjohn warnings, and I look at them in the light of the Yates memo. We take a look at a report from Allison Taylor uh, that she wrote for the FCPA blog on the OECD uh, integrity forum, which was recently concluded. And uh, I take a, uh, some time to talk about the SCCE, European Compliance and Ethics Institute, which concluded this week in Prague. And finally, Jay gives us uh, some highlights of his weekend report. The episode is a little bit longer than normal, coming in at over 30 minutes. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 47 for the week ending April 7th, 2017, the season opener edition. As always, I'm joined by Mr. Affiliated Monitors, or perhaps Mr. Monitors, Jay Rosen in sunny Los Angeles. Jay, welcome. Uh, thank you, Tom. Great to be uh, with you again, and looking forward to uh, hearing about your uh, adventures in Prague. So we probably should start off by uh, noting for the record, but for the first time in the history of the world ever, the Houston Astros, Boston Red Sox, and Los Angeles Dodgers all lead their divisions simultaneously. So uh, kudos to that, although uh, the Astros lost last night, so I couldn't say they have the best record in baseball. Oh, well, I'm sure you'll have an opportunity to say that again during the season. Yeah, me too. So, Jay, we had uh, a really uh, some interesting things that uh, were reported and came out this week. We've got a, I don't want to say an eclectic list, but a list of um, things that's it's a little bit broader than uh, FCPA, but it certainly all delves into compliance and uh, ethics. And if we could save the uh, wrap-up of the SCCE uh, European Compliance and Ethics Institute for a little bit later, we might start off with the announcement earlier this week that Kara Brockmeyer, the uh, FCPA chief at the Securities and Exchange Commission has announced she is retiring from the uh, SEC after 17 years of uh, service to our country. Uh, I would uh, start off by noting she's a fellow University of Michigan law grad, so uh, kudos and go blue to Kara for that alone. But she's been the head of the FCPA unit since 2011. And if I could just highlight some of the, uh, the work uh, that she's done, since that time, or even recently, obviously last fall, we had the OXIF capital management case where a hedge fund paid $412 million for anti-bribery abuses. We had the uh, largest FCPA fine in the history of the world ever, Odebrecht Brascom. We had J.P. Morgan case, <coughs> Chase, rather, where the company paid $264 million for 
um, the hiring of uh, sons and daughters of Chinese government officials or the princeling cases. We had Anheuser-Busch InBev, which paid $6 million to settle FCPA charges that it chilled a whistleblower who reported misconduct. Uh, also, we had Kara uh, was under her tenure, was the uh, first SEC chief to have enforcements where they had non-prosecution agreements for uh, FCPA violations given to companies, and we had deferred prosecution agreements uh, given to individuals. Uh, I would also note in the Oxif case, they had a prosecution against the um, CEO and the CFO uh, individually. So a lot of innovation by Kara Brockmeyer uh, really expanded and worked uh, to uh, aggressively uh, and properly prosecute the uh, FCPA. Uh, I think most of the listeners to this podcast, Jay, would know that the Department of Justice uh, is on the criminal side of things under FCPA prosecutions, and the SEC is typically under the civil side. And they focus on the accounting provisions, which include the books and records and internal controls provision. But also, Jay, the uh, the focus of the SEC is to protect uh, the U.S. investor uh, so that public companies make fair and accurate disclosures. And if you think about her tenure at the commission in the context of what the SEC's role is, as once again, as opposed to the Department of Justice, which is prosecuting criminal behavior. I think that uh, all of the cases that I articulated and then the uh, kind of the innovations that Kara and her team brought forward uh, are really uh, there uh, to protect U.S. investors and really move the ball forward for U.S. investors going forward. Uh, I don't know if you had the, uh, the chance to ever meet Kara, but if you did uh, uh, meet her or hear her talk, do you have any thoughts on uh, what you might have heard? Um, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, as Matt spoke in uh, his article that we're talking about, Matt Kelly and Radical Compliance, um, you know, she's always been uh, very thoughtful about what the mandate is for the SEC. And, um, you know, I think what we've seen a lot of over the past few years is there's a lot more transparency out there for the uh, FCPA practitioner. And I think she was... Uh, involved heavily with contributing to that. Um, you said 17 years, so if I do my math this morning and I've had my coffee, it looks like she got her start uh, under the second Bush administration. So uh, nope, she, nope, 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 first. nope. First one, sorry. Okay, I, I guess I'm getting older than I thought. But uh, did she have a, a reputation one way or another um, uh, for her political leanings? So my question is, is this just time to do something else, or do you think this is more of uh, the Trump administration wanting to insert their own people in? So um, she actually came in just at the start of the first Bush administration in April 2000. So uh, quite, a, quite, a, quite a long tenure. Uh, she's been at the uh, SEC really since the explosion of growth of SC FCPA prosecutions. Uh, going forward. Um, probably it's just, it's really time to move on. And that may have been, uh, you know, her thought process or decision-making calculus may have been influenced by a new administration. Uh, they certainly may want to bring their own people in. Uh, Jay Clayton, if, if confirmed, may want to bring his own folks in. And that's, uh, I think, appropriate for an administration to have um, a uh, um, 
you know, their folks in place. And, you know, all of that may have led to, to her making that decision. Um, you know, if there had been a different administration, she might've come to another decision, but I, I don't know that. Um, nevertheless, uh, really a tireless civil servant, Jay. And one of the things that I don't think the, um, compliance community recognizes enough, and I don't think we've even talked about it, is really the yeoman's work that our regulators and DOJ prosecutors do in bringing transparency to uh, that government work and FCPA prosecutions, but more than that, helping to educate us on uh, what the government expectations are. And Kara has certainly been tireless on that. I've been on panels with her. I've moderated panels where she's spoken in depth, really, about uh, SEC, uh, the way they think through problems, the way, the way they think through uh, enforcement actions, the way they think through evidence that's brought in front of them, the way they think through whether a company has an effective compliance program, the way they think through their decisions regarding enforcement. Uh, I, I heard her speak in, uh, in uh, New York in March at the Third Party Risk Management Oversight Conference uh, about uh, not only the the year of 2016 in review, but kind of where the uh, the commission was going forward, particularly how they were uh, focusing on third parties, as you would expect for that conference. So, um, Kara Brockmeyer really, to me, embodies and exemplifies the best in um, U.S. public servants. Um, you can be a an elected public servant, or you can be a civil servant uh, working for uh, an agency or commission, or or as a prosecutor. And, and she's really has shown that in her 17 years and um, really brought a lot of insight to people like you and me that we can help uh, perhaps our clients with uh, going forward. So just a huge kudos and shout out to uh, Kara Brockmeyer for her tenure. I think it's been uh, really uh, a big, uh, you know, she's been there through the entire uh, growth of uh, FCPA enforcement for the FCPA. And she's been one of the people that's really led exactly what you said, Jay, uh, to help focus on the mandate and move forward the mandate of the Securities and Exchange Commission and bring transparency to uh, FCPA investigations and prosecutions uh, from the uh, SEC. Well, we certainly wish her the best. And uh, it'll be exciting to see what she does with the next chapter in her career. Yes. Uh, talking about something else that's not quite 17 years old, but, uh, <laughs> almost, but, uh, our good friend, Matt Kelly, again, took a look at, uh, the Walmart FCPA update. And, uh, since, uh, 2012 or actually really 2011, when they first went to the government, uh, their aggregate spend on, uh, their FCPA investigation and improvements to their, uh, and compliance program now comes in at $837 million. Uh, in the last year, they spent $99 million, which is probably uh, a bit of a down year. And uh, we have been hoping for the past two years that it was going to signal uh, some kind of settlement with the government, but we're, we're not quite there yet. So the... Um... 99, I think that's the lowest annual spend since 2014. The, um, the numbers are just eye-popping, Jay. Uh, but they drive home a real important point, which is that whatever the uh, resulting fine and penalty is, it's really going to pale or may pale in comparison to what Walmart has spent. And uh, if you, uh, even if Walmart walked uh, going forward on this, 
I think that people would understand that their lack of having a robust policy and procedure up until the time the uh, the New York Times broke the story uh, really uh, has cost them going forward and cost them this this huge number of $837 million. Think about, I often say, think about what that cost would have been to Walmart if they'd spent that over the last uh what, 39 years or 40 years since the FCPA uh, was enacted, what would that be on an annual basis? And it would be much, uh, my trial lawyer map tells me it'd be much lower. So um, a really a pretty good lesson for the compliance practitioner. On the flip side, and uh, you and I have talked about this in, in prior podcasts, Walmart has really stepped up to be a leader in FCPA compliance not only in terms of the uh, resources they have put into their own compliance function, but also as a leader in thought leader and having their uh, chief compliance officer and others within the company uh, on the speaking circuit, sharing best practices, talking about what it's like to have a 250,000-person workforce across the globe uh, that may have a high school education or may have a sixth-grade education. And how do you train uh, all of those uh, employees on your core values so that you get everybody moving. And then since 2014, they published the annual Global uh, Ethics and Compliance Report on themselves, which offers uh, various details on the company's compliance program. So, um, and I'm, I'm sorry, I misspoke. The uh, Wall Street Journal, excuse me, New York Times broke the story back in 2012, not 2014. So, um, Kudos to Walmart. I think they've done just a yeoman's job, Jay, uh, although this uh, this is a, quite an eye-popping number. I agree. And, um, you know, as we keep talking about the calculus of these things, uh, it'll be interesting to see under the Sessions administration uh, what this type of resolution will look like. I'm sure that the company is eager to get closure on this matter. So, uh you know, let's take a look forward into Q3 and Q4, and, uh, and hopefully we'll see some um, resolution on this towards the end of the year. Um, we've got another article that you wanted to highlight um, about Upjohn warnings. Right. So why don't we do that, and then we'll go into, I guess, uh, what we learned at the European Compliance and Ethics Institute. All right. So uh, for those who may not know, Upjohn, Upjohn warnings are, those are um, uh, given in a context of a corporate investigation. They're given by corporate counsel, which uh, they're provided to those that are being interviewed. And basically an Upjohn warning is a set of statements made by the lawyer for the company at the start of an interview with an employee. The purpose is to inform the employee about the uh, company lawyer's role and the privileged nature of the conversation. It's to ensure that employees understand who the lawyer is, who the lawyer represents, and most importantly, who the lawyer does not represent. And I should have started off, Jay, by saying that uh, this discussion came from an article by our friend Sarah Croft at uh, Grand Jury Target. It's a great blog. Uh, she doesn't post enough blogs. I continually rag on her to write more because her stuff is just excellent. But she generally she writes about white-collar crime issues. Not all of them are FCPA, uh, but they all are related to issues that touch uh, FCPA investigations and in prosecutions. And uh, this particular blog post, which we'll uh, link to in the show notes, is entitled Upjohn Warnings from Both Sides of the Table. And there, um, she writes about uh, Upjohn Warnings uh, in the context of being the lawyer for the employee who's sitting in the interview, the lawyer for the company who's sitting in the interview, and uh, some of the, the questions that the lawyer might have. So, um, 
There are four general parts to the Upjohn warning, which generally go along the lines of the following. Uh, you say, I was hired by the company to investigate X, and then the company um, thinks that you may have some important information to share. I represent the company in this investigation. I do not represent you as the employee, and I cannot give you as the employee legal advice. Uh, the interview is protected by the attorney-client privilege, um, so the employee should not disclose it to anyone. But more importantly, and number four, is that the privilege is owned by the company. It is the company who may choose to disclose the contents of the interview to people outside of it, specifically including the government or law enforcement. So what you try to do is explain that, uh, get the uh, employee to sign uh, that uh, you have at least presented that to them, and uh, then move forward. What Sarah poses is an interesting question about if you give these warnings to, and uh, um, if the company is going to turn over that information to the government, does that then make the case that if a company, excuse me, if an employee uh, does not uh, fully cooperate in the interview, that employee is engaged in the federal obstruction of justice charge? And uh, she cites the case of Computer Associates. Um, I have to disagree with her citation for that reason. But uh, she does raise an interesting point. Um, we have a one FCPA case where the government, um, uh, um, the CCI case, where the government sued uh, or brought, actually brought criminal charges for one employee who destroyed evidence on the way to her uh, investigation. That charge was later dropped. But it, it raises an interesting point that I have wondered about, which is particularly in the after the Yates memo, Jay, where companies are mandated to turn over as quickly as possible the results of investigations to the government. Um, if you're going to turn over the results of, of the investigation to the government, um, should there be additional criminal procedure protections for the employee? So, for instance, um, should a Miranda warning be given? Not the Upjohn warning. But if uh, an employee says something and they either lie or don't give full information, and that's a basis of an obstruction of justice charge, um, should they have been Mirandaized? Um, unfortunately, I don't pretend to know the answer to that, but her post is very interesting and uh, raises some good questions. And uh, hopefully I'm going to be able to, to get her on a podcast uh, somewhere down the road to, uh, to re really flesh these out. But uh, check out uh, Grand Jury Target blog. Um, that's the name of it. Sarah Croft, a white collar practitioner from, uh, in Washington, DC. She has some uh, good stuff. And then, uh, before we get to Prague, I wanted to highlight, uh, another conference, which our colleague, Allison Taylor at BSR, um, attended and wrote about, um, which was the OECD 2017 global anti-corruption integrity forum in, I think it was held in Paris. And um, it was a great uh, post by Allison on the FCPA blog, and once again, we'll link to it in the show notes. Um, she is a, a director of advisory services at BSR, a nonprofit consultancy which focuses on sustainability and CSR. And she wrote about how companies are beginning to utilize integrity uh, beyond uh, um she said ethics beyond compliance. I would call it integrity beyond compliance. So some of the key points she uh, raised were, number one, exactly that, that companies are building compliance programs not just to, to follow the law, 
but to really foster their their overall uh, value of integrity um, that uh, by burning or operationalizing compliance, you make um, employees ethical and integrity champions that uh, by <clears throat> talking about integrity and uh, this helps to move the corruption de- debate simply beyond bribery. And she specifically pointed to tax avoidance and financial uh, transparency as major concerns for civil society and shareholder act- act- activists. Uh, she highlighted the uh, now one-year anniversary of the Panama Papers and the emergence of what she characterized as due diligence 2.0, which really moves beyond the uh, paper program that uh, some commentators still think you should have. They, uh, she also really hit on something that you and I talk about, which is not simply the risk, but what's the business impact of uh, having a sustaining a violation or, or even pu- being publicly charged. So uh, it's a really interesting post. Uh, hopefully, I'm going to be able to get Allison on for a podcast that we can real, more fully talk about that. Um, so with that, Jay, should we move to the uh, SCCE 2017 Compliance and Ethics Institute Europe? I'm uh, definitely uh, eager to hear about it. it was, I followed as much as I could on Twitter and on LinkedIn, but it seems like uh, – there was a lot that happened, so I'd be anxious to get your bird's eye view. So, uh, first of all, the the thing that immediately jumps out at you, Jay, is the size. Uh, 250 people in a fairly confined area, three meeting rooms. Um, uh, anyone who's been to an SCCE, Compliance and Ethics Institute in America, understands that's uh, very different. So, um, on the Sunday uh, when I made my presentation at a pre-conference event with um, uh, Jenny O'Brien and uh, Roy Snell, uh, I was initially a little bit put off because I was worried that the conference wouldn't be as good because so few people. But it turned out that that was really a positive, Jay. And that positive was that it gave you the opportunity not to, I wouldn't say develop relationships, but have much more in-depth conversations with people over a period of several days. So there were people I met on Sunday. You know, we had a, shared a cup of coffee or a, or a snack on one of the breaks together, and we talked about either issues of concern or what we'd heard about in, in some of the sessions. Those conversations uh, in, uh, continued at uh, dinner uh, Monday night and Tuesday night. Uh, obviously, or not obviously, but there were cocktail hours uh, and social events after the um, day's uh, sessions. The sessions themselves were just excellent. Uh, I would say uh, one of my favorite, uh, not to toot the horn of affiliated monitors, uh, was the affiliated monitors presentation with uh, Eric Feldman. It was just an excellent uh, presentation. I took just a ton and a half of notes uh, about the company's work with uh, Louis Berger and at that uh, monitorship and how Louis Berger has really uh, turned itself around. But uh, all of the sessions I found just were excellent. Lots of substantive information. Um, and just an, an excellent conference. But here was the highlight for me, and it was one that I was really not expecting. Our colleague Jonathan Armstrong and his partner, Andre Bywater, uh, had secured the uh, uh, participation of the uh, British ambassador to Czechoslovakia to talk about Brexit. And last Friday, of course, was the, uh, week, the a week ago Friday, was when the Article 50 letter was uh, delivered. So uh, the diplomatic corps was all in London being briefed on what to say about that. 
a long-winded way of saying the ambassador didn't make it. They had to get uh, two people on a, a short-term, uh, very short-term. One was a chief compliance officer from a Jaguar, as he called it. And then a uh, second was a um, columnist from The Guardian. Uh, and so they had no PowerPoint presentation, uh, largely unscripted remarks, very free-flowing. Uh, and then the other thing you have to kind of put on top of that, Jay, was in America, all we had heard was the headlines were Britain to go to war with Spain over Gibraltar and Brexit. Well, um, that really doesn't tell you anything about Brexit and um, sensationalism at its finest. But what these two speakers focused on, Jay, was the commercial aspects of Brexit, not the political questions, not whether it was a return to the future or uh, uh Back to the Future or anything, you know, going back to the good old days of uh, when uh, English Navy ships ruled the world. It was really these are the steps forward. Here are the deadlines and here's how we think it's going to work on a commercial basis. And the two things that really struck me were the following. What Europe wants, because Britain has said we don't want to be a part of Europe, at least in the EU, is they want a divorce. Well, what England wants, what the United Kingdom wants, is a commercial trade deal with Europe. To get that trade deal, they are going to have to agree to largely all of the EU commercial laws. What England or the United Kingdom, Great Britain, will get back in return is a return to sovereignty so that the European Court of Justice will not be the court of final appeal in the United Kingdom. It will be the UK uh, Supreme Court. So um, from the commercial basis, what that means for the compliance practitioner is things will continue as the same. You will have the Serious Fraud Office investigating and prosecuting the UK Bribery Act to the extent that the EU has anti-bribery and anti-corruption laws. Those will pour it over to the United Kingdom, and compliance will continue really uh, in the robust nature that it has uh, over the past few years, and certainly uh, – the SFO is robustly prosecuting the uh, UK Bribery Act. So from where I sit, and perhaps the same place you sit, Jay, uh, I found it to be a uh, very useful session. It gave me solid information that I had not received before about what does Brexit mean for the compliance profession in a way that uh, no one had really been able to articulate. So um, would it be fair to say um – would there be elements of uh, Y2K involved in this changeover with Brexit that, if you recall, again, I keep going back to the early 2000s, there was so much fear and trepidation that when the clock struck 1201 on 2001, or actually, I guess, 2000, that the whole world was going to stop. So if I'm understanding you correctly, from an uh, anti-corruption perspective, uh, you know, uh, perspective, things are not really going to stay that as long as uh, the SFO gets financed by the British government, uh, they will continue to uh, enforce the UK Bribery Act and the rest of our partners in Europe will pursue the same strategies. So uh, I would start with your premise, Jay, that uh, Y2K might have been something uh, very big and very important, but there was a technical response and a commercial response to that, which was companies went back 
and fix their systems so that when Y2K occurred, we didn't have a catastrophe. Here, I don't think there's anything to go back and fix. I just think that uh, it will it will move forward on a commercial basis. I understand that's different than a political basis. Um, and maybe even, you know, the veiled threat of uh, Gibraltar going forward. But those are political questions, not commercial questions. So on a transactional basis, um, really uh, not much is going to change, I think, is what I would say. Great. Uh, you know, whenever SCCE gets together, uh, Roy is always around and he's very passionate. Did he, uh, did he attend in Europe and uh, did he have any good rants that you're able to share? Well, uh, he he did attend. Uh, he and I were on a panel together with uh, Jenny O'Brien. Uh, if you'll recall, in 2014, he and Jenny did a uh, panel on influence and leadership. Um, so they did that uh, for an hour, and then I talked about the use of social media and a best practices compliance program for an hour. Uh, Roy did have uh, some rants. Uh, they were really not public, so I probably shouldn't uh, report them, uh, at least okay. without uh, his uh, – his, um, a blessing going towards um, the uh, he and the entire team. I mean, Adam was there, Liza was there, uh, Katie was there, um, Courtney. Courtney was there. Uh, Courtney did a session on social media, which is great. She had a great session on social media foo bars and um, uh, just uh, really excellent on things not to put uh, on your company's social media account. Um, the uh, they had just come from the annual uh, HCCA, the Health Conference, Health Compliance, uh, Healthcare Compliance Association annual conference. So they'd been on the road for about 10 days, and frankly, they were in a lot better shape than I would have been uh, after that period of time. So uh, kudos to them. The uh, We were at the Marriott Hotel. It's a great hotel, just treated as first class, um, great clubs, uh, great food, uh, breakfast buffets. Uh, really excellent uh, in-between session snacks and, and uh, hot foods and all sorts of nibbles for us. Uh, Prague itself, if you've never been, is an absolutely gorgeous city. We had two days of uh, clear, cool weather, and we had two days of clear, rainy weather. So um, lots going on in Prague. We were right in the center of downtown, so that was very cool uh, as well. And the uh, the attendees, we had obviously people like uh, myself and Eric Feldman, um, Yanks from the U.S. Uh, we had a, a large number of U.S. expats, uh, who some of whom I interviewed for a podcast that I'll uh, put up on the uh, FCPA Report International Edition. Uh, had the chance to interview Eric, uh, so uh, that will go up uh, next week as well. But we had um, a large number of Europeans, Asians, uh, South Americans. Um, we had a huge delegation from Korea. I think we had 40 people. So uh, a very wide range of uh, attendees, really from across the globe, much like the SCC itself. And um, as Adam Turtletop noted, for the first time he could remember, he was the third tallest person at a conference, not the tallest. So uh, he appreciated that as well. <laughs> so uh, one more thing. Uh, it wasn't on the topic list, but I, I think we should just touch upon it for a second. Uh, big news out of Big D that... Tony Romo is retiring, and uh, I think even bigger news is that he's going to be the lead analyst on CBS. He'll be replacing Phil Sims. So uh, any thoughts on that from the state of Texas? Well, um, you know, as a titular Texan fan, I would have liked to have seen him 
maybe take the Texans a little bit further in the playoffs. I'm a, I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan at heart. So, um, you know, his tenure was over at the, uh, at the Cowboys because of uh, how well uh, Zach did last year, Zach Prescott. Um, the, um, um, one of the, perhaps with Phillip Rivers, of this, this generation of quarterbacks, the best never to make to a Super Bowl, uh, playing under Jerry Jones' uh, ownership, uh, they probably never will get back to the Super Bowl. Uh, he's such a horrendous uh, owner. So uh, it was great. Uh, you know, it was, it's much more than Tony. We hardly knew you. Uh, we had a great run. Uh, frankly, I'm, I'm kind of glad he's retiring. I was thinking he was one hit away from being paralyzed with uh, three broken backs over the past two years. That's probably uh, three too many for me. So, uh, But uh, think about what he's stepping into. Uh, he is stepping not into a sportscaster role, which many ex-professional athletes do, but as the lead analyst on uh, CBS. So um, whatever you think of Phil Sims, you know, Phil's a pretty good analyst. And uh, I don't know how Phil's feeling these days, but that's a that's a pretty big bump in the uh, I cannot think of any other um, professional athlete or coach who went into announcing that got the lead role on the game. Uh, they, they usually either rotate to the uh, pregame show or they uh, uh, learn their chops um, in either uh, college or, uh, you know, off off uh, off the top games not the top uh, game each week on uh, CBS or Fox, CBS, NBC, or Fox. And uh, so he's, he's in for quite a challenge. And, you know, he obviously has shown his commitment to the game, and I'm sure, sure he'll bring the same commitment to uh, his sportscaster role. But uh, as uh, naked as you are as the quarterback, everybody sees what you do. Well, everybody's going to hear what he does as the announcer. And if he uh, – if he has trouble or he flames out or, or he's not uh, up to being a number one, it's going to be very apparent very quick. So high risk, uh, as uh, as uh, John McCain was told about his pick of uh, Sarah Palin, high risk, high reward. So uh, I'm hoping that uh, Brother Romo gets a high reward. I certainly wish him the best. He's been a, a great ca- uh, quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. And uh, thanks for the memories, Tony Romo. Yeah, I, th- I think he, he picked the right time to go. And uh, one of the pundits, I don't know if it was uh, Dan Patrick, maybe in his show, was saying that uh, <clears throat> Jerry Jones is stacking all the networks with ex-Cowboys. You got uh, Troy Aikman, the number one analyst on Fox. You got Romo now on CBS. You've got other Cowboys uh, sprinkled throughout organizations, whether it's e- ESPN or uh NBC. So it, it looks like that uh, Jerry's big thing was not trying to trade Romo, but trying to uh, position him uh, to get some more media coverage for the Cowboys. Yeah, that's uh, he's really struggled with that over the years. And so I can certainly see why he would uh, want to do that. All right. So we're, we're wrapping up. Uh, oh, uh, what's, what's, you're going to give us a hint of the Jay Rosen weekend report. Oh, I would love to. Uh, and I want to let thank everybody for reading last week's uh, <clears throat> interview uh, where Millie and Michaela asked their dad about what he does. We got a lot of good response to that. So thanks, everyone. Uh, this one uh, is something that I think you'll like, Tom. Uh, Tom is a big fan of classic rock and roll, and they just announced that they're having these classic con 
uh, concerts, one on the West Coast at Dodger Stadium and one in New York City at City Field. And the groups that are going to be on the two-day event are the Eagles, Fleetwood Mac, Steely Dan, Journey, the Doobie Brothers, and Earth, Wind, and Fire. So I'm going to take a look at uh, ethics and compliance lessons that can be drawn from both the uh, titles of the albums from some of these bands and also some of the individual songs. And I think, Tom, although this isn't Vegas, I think this would be a great opportunity for you and Michelle to listen to some classic rock and roll and do a little uh, retail therapy here in Los Angeles. So the dates are uh, Saturday, July 15th and Sunday the 16th. But should you prefer to go to the East Coast, it's Saturday the 29th and Sunday the 30th. You know, that's that's a kind offer. But as I told my wife when she made me that offer, uh, my days of outdoor two-day festivals have long since passed. So uh, I'm going to take a pass on this one. Okay. <laughs> there was a time, but that time's long gone. All right. I guess Rebecca and I will just have to figure out another way to get you two out to L.A. So you want to take us home, Jay? Yeah. Um, so both uh, for Tom Fox and myself, uh, Jay Rosen, we'd like to thank you all for joining us and looking at the week in FCPA that was ending April 7th, 2017. Thanks for joining us and have a wonderful weekend. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again, and I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, we would greatly appreciate it if you would rate us as it would help our rankings and help get the word about out about this only the only weekly podcast that wraps up each week's events in compliance. Also, if you have any questions you'd like to submit to Jay and myself, you can email us at tfox at tfoxlaw.com for myself and Jay, that's Jay, the letter Rosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this week in FCPA, and I hope you'll join us next week for a wrap-up of the review, the week's events. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.